Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with Warwick Hunter, Managing Director for the Development and Asset Management Business at Henley Investment Management. Warwick's career has featured Central London Office, Hotel, Super Prime Resi and Build to Rent, having worked for Drivers Jonas, Core, GPE, Qatar DR and now Henley Investments. So Warwick, we've got a lot of ground to cover here, mate. Um, so let's get started. How does Chapter 1 begin for you? Thanks, Nick. I mean, it was probably all the way back to first exposure to real estate which was probably by chance, which is not unusual listening to previous episodes of this. But my route to university was actually largely influenced by the military. So back when I was 16, I undertook the Royal Commissioning Board for the Army uh, to ultimately go into Sandhurst. And with that, conversations were then held with the Royal Artillery and ultimately led to me to do a course in geomatics, which was that's basically uh, map making and topographical surveying to uh, to the layman. So I did that at Newcastle University, uh, and then suddenly there was a bit of a change of heart uh, for me, uh, principally because uh, the conflict in the Middle East started to break out in 2001, and really the reasons for me to get into the army were to really feel be working in a career as, as part of a team, to work with some really exceptional people, uh, to visit interesting places, to work outdoors, uh, but to sort of lead a, a team of men across into conflict wasn't the most appealing. So having undertaken a, an RICS accredited degree at, at uni, I sort of came out of uni in 2002, went home and uh, sort of cancelled the papers for, for the army and, and decided, okay, well, where now? So that led me to a an RICS matrix, a sort of young surveyors event, networking event, just to see what what other careers were were on offer uh, in the world of surveying, and probably by by chance uh, bumped into a, a a sort of the an equity partner of a local estate agency business who also ran a commercial property arm and surveying business, and one thing led to another, and he he asked if I wanted to join him at that practice and help him with uh, the mixed use stuff in terms of what they were selling. So a bit of an investment role locally, uh, but doing a real range of stuff in terms of local retail shops, industrial warehouse units, small scale offices. Uh, but it was it was good to see that that exposure. You team me by a bit of surprise then. I wasn't I was not expecting that sort of that military sort of revelation. When was it then that you started to potentially sort of take this a bit more seriously? When did it, when did the career really begin and particularly sort of when did sort of that transition to to London real estate begin? Well, I think it, it was pretty quick, Nick. You know, I sort of I started at, uh, at that local practice in September 2002. Really enjoyed it. Really been enjoyed meeting different people, understanding what their aspirations were for for property, whether it was to buy, to sell, to lease. What was important to them, you know, and actually working as part of a team to help those people sort of realise what what they wanted to do. But a lot of my university friends had already made that journey down south into London, a uh, variety of careers in investment banking, uh, in marketing, FMCG, accountancy. And, and really, I think there was a little bit of a, the green-eyed monster that sort of looked at the time they were having down in London and thought, well, actually, I'd quite like to be down there with them. But actually, I'm really enjoying surveying. So that's when you know the CV started to go out to the, the usual suspects of you know JLL, Savills, 
uh, Knight Frank, uh, and ultimately it started with Drivers Jonas in March 2003. Now, I speak to, to lots of people, and in many, in many ways, that's the, you know this this is the stereotypical sort of start of a real estate degree, isn't it, in terms of working for the for the major agents. But what I wanted to ask really was, you know, what was it like in those early days, sort of being a, a non-cognate entry, studying at the same the same time? Is there is there differences between you know, the guys who've who've already studied at Oxford Brooks and sort of Reading and and those who are still doing it sort of part time? Um, I think to be honest with, with that, it, it really depended what seat you were in at which firm. Drivers Jonas had a policy that if you were undertaking your your MSc at Southbank, which is where we went on on uh, on day release, almost like a young offender. Um, <laughs> but uh, you were we were sitting with uh, Richard Petty at the time in the affordable housing team, so I probably didn't have as much exposure in the early days as some of the guys did. Certainly from CBRE and JLL, who were already embarking on their rotations. Um, so I probably didn't feel as exposed because certainly if you're if you're going into those seats without that baseline understanding of L&T and valuation and development appraisals I think you are at a slight loss but to be honest I was I was really fortunate Nick. I started it in 2003 you know we we're coming out of a, a bit of a recession but the market was was booming sentiment was high you know and, and actually it was a, a really fun time to be uh, to be a surveyor and a really fun time to be a graduate in uh, in Mayfair. So that's how the sort of the real estate career begins and sort of your, your early days of being a surveyor but not long after it begin, and I think this is what this is what really sort of marks your your career sort of differently, is that very very quickly you move into development. Before we really get onto that sort of move, I wanted to find out: was there anything that happened at DJs? Was there a seed sown, about, particularly about development, that that made you want to take that next transition? Yeah, I think I think my my career has really been milestoned, if you like, by actually working with some really talented and inspiring people and at drivers jonas i was in the west end office agency team reporting into stephen pierce who was you know a fantastic personality but also was really sort of considerate and caring about the younger guys coming through so really sort of took me under his wing and actually sort of getting out into the market seeing properties seeing product in what what developers were churning out in terms of the new office space sort of captivated me and actually just sort of started asking questions about why are we seeing so much repetition in development? What, why, what is leading these developers to make, not make really bold choices? And then hand, hand in glove with that in my time at Drivers Journey, so I was also working with Mike Jones. So looking at the more strategic element of, of the estates part of the business. So Mike did a lot of work with the Pollen Estate on Savile Row. And looking at actually, it's not just always about achieving the highest headline rent possible or the most aggressive commercial terms. Actually, can you strategically look at a wider estate and come up with a portfolio plan to say, actually, we are going to target longer term development breaks. We're actually going to shuffle around tenants. We're going to try and keep occupation high. It wasn't just about doing deals. And, and it was that sort of looking, again, working with probably a number of investors and looking at the way that they looked after their portfolio and what their ambitions and aspirations were across their estate that, that sort of motivated me to say, well, actually, there's very different ways you can position real estate here. You know, it's either long-term hold and therefore it's about rental and, you know, rents being received and maintaining that rent roll, or it's about IRR and short-term deal making. Two very different ways to look at, at property, one not necessarily better than the other, just dep- depend on the business plan and actually then how you go about setting a strategy for that real estate depending on, on the business plan. 
Okay, I wanted to, to ask you then a question that that I sort of teed up a little bit ago, and and that is, your next move leaves private practice behind, and you go and join the developer, but you you do so it's after just three years in, within this sort of real estate um, sort of industry. That's rare, isn't it? Uh, I don't I don't know how rare you maybe recognise that that at the time, but certainly from from someone you know in my position, those opportunities are few and far between. So I'm curious about how it how it came up and and how you think you got your foot in the door. Yeah, I was I was lucky because I hadn't even sat in a development seat even in private practice. So most people that sort of go into a development management role, you would have assumed they would have had some development experience along the way, understanding what potentially specification is or planning is. But I went straight in from an agency seat, and and again, I think you look back at it, it's obviously a lucky break at the time. I, I moved in 2006 office central london office market was absolutely booming i moved across to core uh, part of Greycoat at the time they had probably about a million square feet under development at that at that moment in time in the cycle and they were actually looking at it to say well actually we need somebody that can position these assets and actually be the interface with the market so you know quite young but i've got a good contact base within the office agency world and ultimately then starting to position those those new buildings into the market so i was brought in principally with an agency focus to sit developer side, but almost a sort of, you know, a sort of a leasing agent internally in the development team. Um, so that was the principal focus. But, you know, as soon as you get in into a development seat, all you want to do is influence product and you want to influence buildings. And therefore, naturally, that leads you into the design team and the, the design meeting rooms to try and influence what, what's being shaped. There's something you said there that I, that I think is, is becoming a bit of a pattern to people who I sit down and talk to. And if, you know, if I just reiterate some of you know, the premise of, of, of why I do this, it's, it's to try and understand about sort of how my guests make this transition in terms of their learning and their development. And it, you know, it tends to fall into sort of chapters or sort of waves. And you mentioned something about then having, you know, coming in from sort of three years experience within agency and leasing. And, and that's what you've been hired to do. But you've, you mentioned there about sort of wanting to you know, more influence, wanting to get your foot in, into those to sort of design meetings and sort of, and then then sort of help to define the product. How easy is that to do when you've got you know, so little experience? Presumably, you're already dealing with the, let's say, sort of the guys now giving you advice or your sort of former colleagues and sort of superiors. How is it to, to take that next step up and move on from that? Um, I think that's just about dealing with people, Nick. I, you know, I think what I've always tried to do within my career is to give people the environment in which they can actually impart, impair their advice in terms of an, an influence design and an influence what they're capable of doing. Uh, I may not necessarily have all the answers, certainly not with the experience that I had. Uh, but if you're putting together good teams and you're in a really creative, positive atmosphere, then hopefully it's just about letting letting their expertise come through and try to influence you know what what you're doing. Why do you think you didn't say, for example, sort of double down on that experience in that agency and leasing? Why do you think you you thought, do you know what this is this is my this is my lane. I'm going to stick to it, and I'm I'm going to make sure that I am the specialist in this. Um, it's a good question, and, and I remember asking. You know, Stephen Pierce, when I was at Drivers Journals, is this the right time for me to go and make this move? And Stephen said, you know, I sort of remember it to the day, is, is the advice he gave was just always challenge yourself. You know, never, never stand still and never get comfortable. Because if you're not learning, then you're not, you're not getting better. 
and as, as the market was flying you know I, I thought i just looked at the opportunity and thought well well why not if if you know david ainsworth chris strickland peter thornton are, are able to give me this are willing to give me this opportunity then let's just grab the nettle and take it okay well i will come back to then to uh, that sort of analogy and see if, see if you get stung later on um <laughs> Okay, so let's let's spend a bit of time then. Sort of give me a, a bit of a feel then for what what's happening at core. I've pestered you about how how and why you made made that move, but just tell us a bit more about sort of what's happening and what you're learning in particular. So it, it's completely thrown in at the deep end. So whilst I'm I'm probably more comfortable talking to the leasing agents, you know. So I was I was involved in Twenty Gresham Street, Watermark Place, uh, One Hundred and One New Cavendish Street. So probably best part of eight hundred thousand square feet that were that was coming through. Very much in my lane, talking to leasing agents, looking at marketing details, websites, how we're going to promote the building, all of that sort of stuff. That the agency side of things, but then very much in at the deep end in terms of the the earlier work that sitting in design team rooms, sitting in with contractors meetings, sitting with the architects. But you know, some of that is through through the agency field anyway. When you're doing requests for proposals and you're giving detailed specification breakdowns to proposed tenants. But it was then just, you know, I was, I was what, 20, 26, 27 years old. And it was just, I, I just felt like, you know, just had to absorb as much as I can. Obviously, anybody I think who is a development manager has a specialism and a particular interest. Mine's probably always been more of the, of the leasing and the investment side and, and therefore the performance side of it. Other development managers are potentially engineers or project managers or cost managers or architects. Uh, and therefore everybody has a little bit of specialism, but being a development manager is such a broad role. I don't think I don't think you stop learning even now when I'm sitting in, you know, structural meetings or MEP meetings, sustainability meetings, you know, planning meetings. There's such breadth to, to the role. It's just about trying to understand as much as you can about all of those disciplines, but also then trying to almost be the, the conductor in terms of trying to just gel gel the team you know on these big projects you've got probably 30 to 40 people in a design team that you're just trying to really coordinate and to be honest for the for the four years that I was at, at core it was just a case of a being fortunate enough to be given the exposure obviously not leading these projects you know sort of working with David Ainsworth especially to see how he how he sort of manages and coordinates and just learning as much as I can okay so you mentioned learning then um, you spent four years at core do you remember a point of which you felt that that pace of learning slowed? Do you remember as to what the catalyst might have been to consider a new role? It, it was it was really fundamental to the market, Nick. You know, going through starting at Core in two thousand and six, and then going through delivering eight hundred thousand square feet in two thousand and seven and eight, and then obviously uh, the GFC then then hits that market, and suddenly it's then looking at what next for for Core and what next for Graco, obviously disposing of the space that they they had on their books at the time but new opportunities in the model of, of gray coat and core uh, were few and far between you know not mu- not much investment was happening around the world let alone in central london offices at that time um and therefore it was again just it was looking ahead to say well what what is coming how how is my career going to advance here and ultimately that that's when gpe then then came up well that's a, that's a nice sort of segue then what what were your views on sort of GPE? What was what was getting you excited about that potential then? I, th- I think again, I've, I've touched on it before, Nick, but just the quality of people in that organisation. You know, from my first interview with Neil Thompson, who had an absolutely clear view of what kind of portfolio he wanted to to create, and then you know when I landed at, at Great Portland Estates, and you then met with Toby, chief exec, who is you know, 
such an, a, an amazing, talented person. You know, took this chief exec role on at GPE at 34 and has never looked back. Um, and then uh, Ben Chambers on the investment team. So you sort of went into that organisation. You knew that they'd gone through a rights issue uh, in 2009. They had dry powder and money on the hip. And they felt that actually they could really capitalise uh, in that early market in 2010, where there was, you know, to be fair, quite a lot of distress in the market. But GPE could take that slightly longer term horizon that, yes, rents may continue to fall. But, you know, believing in the cycles, rents will come back. And ultimately, when rents start to come back and demand comes back, then you will get some compression on the rent on the, on the yield. So therefore, at some point, if you, if you follow that development thesis through, you either if you're buying well at the bottom of the market, you're, you're getting take up and tenants in uh, as, you, as the market recovers. So your rents are starting to pick up and then ultimately you're exiting when you when you benefit from that yield compression. Um, so that was that was the model. GPU were hugely successful in terms of bolting into their portfolio, you know, with, with some great West End offices. And that that journey from 2010 to 2014 at GPE was was a fantastic, again, learning, learning experience and, and really the rigor and the uh, the attention to detail that GPE put into their not only their developments, but also just the internal processes as well. No, no stones really left unturned uh, in terms of trying to really sweat those assets. Um, out of interest, is there is there a downside to that rigor? You know, to someone who who sort of self confessed is, is is interested in the investment, the the deals and the, the transactions. Does does that ever have a have a negative side in terms of being too cautious? I think some people could argue that, Nick. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, the likes of GP, British Land, Land Securities, Derwent are, are accused of not being nimble enough and not being quick enough. But, but development for me, and certainly, you know, what I was, what I was coached at, at, at GPE is that development's about risk and it's about managing risk and you manage risk best through processes. Um, and ultimately, yeah, you, you might not be uh, footloose and you might not be shooting from the hip, but some it's probably where a lot more goes wrong when you when you're not putting that thought and that rigor into those processes so we're fast approaching now your the end of your first decade in real estate looking back now is is there anything you think of that was that was a particularly sort of defining moment or a highlight i think when i was at, at gpe the, the final project that i was involved in was uh, 30 broadwick street in the middle of soho and actually i, I took that from inception all the way through planning onto site I left GP before it was completed, but you know the, the whole of the development had had been crystallised in terms of you know the procurement had gone well, the planning had gone well, and and what what was especially pleasing was the team that I worked with on that building. Just I think development for me that the highlight of, of any development is sitting around a table, and we can probably talk about that you know during COVID in terms of online working and and working remotely, but getting a team around a table, everybody is there to create something and to do something special, a real positivity and a real energy in a team. And ultimately the building we created at, at Broadwick Street, you know, broke all record rents for the area, you know, achieving you know, hundred pound a square foot on the top floor, I think has been regarded as a, an absolute stellar building and hopefully, you know, sort of uh, performs against the test of time well. And I think that's ultimately what, what I really get excited about real estate is creating special buildings and, and and making places for people and because ultimately it's all about it's all about the people anyone who's looking into this sort of the annuals they'll, they'll know that that project was rather special as well because it earned you a couple of a uh, couple of big gongs didn't it what what came next well that that, that sort of 
really brought me to sort of 2014 and GPE had really you know pushed their portfolio and their development pipeline hard between 2010 and 2014. The two remaining projects in their pipeline at that time were Rathbone Place uh, and Hanover Square. Hanover Square I'd worked on in terms of with David Barry's in, in getting a fantastic planning consent and a, and a great agreement with Crossrail to allow that development to come forward. But, but was paused until Crossrail was was crystallised and they moved forward. And I wasn't involved in Rathbone Place, unfortunately. So I started to look at the portfolio of GPE and just think, well, I'm not sure what, what projects are coming. You know, the, and the sentiment in the market was that actually, do you want to start new developments in 2014, 15, 16? Because we're reaching the end of the cycle. So it was really at that moment where I thought, look, I'm, I'm sort of eight years now into my development management life. But I still want some experience. I still want to work on some on some good properties, and I don't really want to just wait for the next cycle to come along. And that's probably when Qatari DR reared its head and presented itself. How much did you know of them at that time? Obviously, knew of them in the marketplace. You know, they they between again 2010 and 2013, they were hugely acquisitive. They bought Chelsea Barracks. That had obviously stuttered and stalled with the involvement of Prince Charles along that road and with with the Rogers scheme knew that they, they'd formed a, a joint venture with Canary Wharf down at, uh, at the Shell Centre on the South Bank. Uh, and obviously they then bought in 2012 the American Embassy on Grosvenor Square. So certainly rich in assets. What do you think you wanted to get out of that role? What do you think you was your, your main driver? Well, sort of having been interviewed, the, the Qataris are renowned for you know, sort of potentially going through quite a high volume of staff and it not being a particularly secure place. And I think that's probably, you know, the way that the Qataris control their assets, their board changes frequently back in Doha. And actually, there's not a huge amount of stability. So that was always the risk, you know, especially leaving a company as, you know, as, as reliable as, as Great Portland Estates uh, to go to somewhere like Qatari DR. But I just felt at the time, you know, I was going to go there as, as development director to take charge of the American embassy. And again, those opportunities don't present themselves that often. And as we said before, Nick, it's grabbing the nettle. Let's chat a bit more about then, about sort of the, the differences. Sort of what what did you notice the most in those in those early days between what you'd what you'd experienced so far with the likes of sort of a core or GPE and now coming into QD? Probably really boringly comes back to process and, and it's about risk management. You know, whilst you talked at GPE, are they potentially nimble? Are they potentially fleet footed? And the answer was 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 no because of the processes and the rigor that they put in. There was a stark change as soon as you you landed at, at, at when I landed at, at Qatari DR, and uh, you know you sort of you look at as you say asset rich and some fantastic sites, but you sort of try and pull apart a business plan, or you try and pull apart the the development brief, or or the project execution plan, or even the purchase assumptions, and uh, there wasn't a great deal there. So immediately you sort of reach back for a little bit of that rigor, and and then apply that. Into, into the projects that, uh, that that we had in the stable at the time. Um, and one thing we've, we've sort of glossed over here is, presumably this, this is quite a stark contrast in terms of not only sort of, you know, we mentioned about sort of, we talked about sort of culture and, and timing wise as well, but but also of asset class, isn't it? This this sort of 31-year-old, 32-year-old sort of work has, has made his, you know, his sort of career on sort of leasing prime central London office blocks and QD's sort of most famous asset is, of course, this this super prime, rather unpopular Chelsea Barracks estate at this time. How easy a transition was that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's going into a sector that, that you that you haven't specialised in. But again, I think it's it's surrounding yourself with the right people. And, and the luxury of Qatar DR and the luxury that affords you with those assets is that 
you can work, you can pick and choose who you want to work with and you can assemble probably the best team, you know, that, that that's around and, and that, that is more than willing to help you in that journey because these are all blue ribbon projects that people want to be involved in. So I spoke to I spoke to a couple of your colleagues and sort of peers over the years as well and sort of prep for this. Right. <laughs> Warts and all. <laughs> well, I asked, one of the questions I asked them was, you know, it's about sort of how you make this transition. And this is what this is what they said. So they said it's extremely rare for anyone to make that transition from from asset class to uh, to asset class, but particularly to the complexity of, of super prime residential. Now, what they said was they thought that you were rather uniquely qualified to do this because you've got this ability to get to the nub of an issue really quickly. And you've always sort of struck them as, as this sort of analytical capacity to understand sometimes quite foreign issues and see opportunities that maybe others have, others have overlooked. Now, does that sound like something, do you think, is that something you were aware of? Does, it, does that, is that sound like a strength? It's, it, well, it's especially kind uh, of them to say so. But yeah, I, I, the, the part of my job I love the most is, is that creative aspect of, identifying where the value is and identifying what is right for a particular asset and therefore if that's if that's the challenge and that's the bit of the job that you really enjoy why does that necessarily always mean you have to be pigeonholed in terms of of an office of a central london office you know recently looking at a site on the south bank we were up against the competition in terms of the other players in the market who were looking at it and all of them are, are you know the plc office office guys and it just didn't feel that the office was the right right approach for the site. You looked at the site, it was probably capable of half a million square feet and thought, do you know what would really work here is mixed uses. How do you create a sense of community? How do you create a place that people want to be in? And yes, there'll be an office component to that. But actually, there may also be some built to rent. There may also be an apart hotel. And actually, you can therefore really regenerate an area because you're putting people together who want to be together not just shoehorning in a use or a sector because that's the mandate and that i think is what i what i really enjoy and therefore that does then cross all sectors and how easy is it to take people with you on that journey then because you know if if we take it on sort of face value what the, the sort of colleague said about sort of you being able to maybe see things that others do how do you make sure that maybe even you know your bosses at the time how do you make sure they see the same thing as you and give you the, the chance to to actually deliver on it I think it's about how you articulate that, Nick. You know, again, it, it comes back to the rigour in the process, doesn't it? So at, at Qatari DR, I started from scratch on the American embassy. I sort of went to Doha and said, I want to spend six months on a very detailed feasibility study. And ultimately, I want to give you choice, you know, the information and the presentation to be able to make informed choices that you are not going to ultimately regret. And on Doha, I, I'll always remember the first slide of that feasibility presentation where there was just... Two, two halves of a page and on one side it was it was profile and on the other half it was return and I said this is your first choice you're going to have to make with the American Embassy is this a project that's for about profile or is this a project about return because they'll take you to very different places the answer probably naturally was it will be both but it was really to, to interrogate and, and put that forensic thought process in and if you can convey that I think then people trust you and I think trust is a really important word that we'll probably come back to because then I think that design teams buy into what you're doing because there's an element of trust you and you with them and them into you. Seniors, investors, bosses, colleagues also have that trust in in the process and in what you're doing, and therefore they I think they naturally follow because of that that trust. 
And hopefully along the way, you sprinkle in a little bit of energy and a little bit of enjoyment because that's ultimately why we get out of bed as well. Let me ask you something else about you're also a change here is that I think this is probably your first time as a, as a man manager. Is that right? In, in QD, yeah. I mean, at uh, GP, it was a very flat structure. You had the, uh, you know, the, the exec committee of, of Neil, Toby, Time, and more latterly, Nick Sanderson. But then it was quite flat in terms of underneath that. So you, each project had a development manager, a project manager, an asset manager. But it was a very flat structure. QD, different in terms of its composition. So then it was about actually building teams internally as well. So then having direct reports, you know, and on the cost side, on the commercial side, on the engineering side, on the uh, on the finance side. How was that transition for you? Did that come naturally? I'd, I'd like to say it, it did, Nick. Yeah, and I hope that doesn't come across as, as arrogant. But I, I've, I've always been a, a huge believer in team sports, participated, you know, since I was 12 till I was 35 at, at hockey, a decent level of that, you know, played cricket, played rugby, in, enjoyed being part of a team. And probably looking back at hockey, I was never the most talented player on the pitch. You know, I sat in midfield, disrupted the play, but again, had was fortunate enough to have fantastic creative players around me. And therefore, I just enjoyed being, enjoyed that role that I could set the pace of play, I could set the tempo, but actually I've just got people around me that are just fantastically gifted and just let them, give them the space and the environment in which to show what they can do. And I think it was, it's the same whether you're in a design team working with, you know, consultants uh, and a professional team or whether it's actually in a business and working with, with people below you. And where do you think, where do you think you learned that from? Is, have you benefited from how others have treated you before, do you think? Or is this sort of, is something you've, you've always uh, sort of gone looking for? I think it's inbuilt in terms of that, going back to those team sports, that just, I think you get the best out of teams by allowing people to feel comfortable in their role and what they're doing, supporting them, encouraging them, giving them room to grow. And actually, therefore, the team performs better. You know, as I said earlier, I've been, been fortunate in the fact that I've worked for some very considerate people in terms of mentoring me, giving me space where, where they thought it was appropriate, you know, perhaps holding the reins a, a little bit back where they thought I'd probably was straying on a tangent. But, you know, Stephen Pierce is the Mike Jones, David Ainsworth, Chris Strickland, David Farries, Neil Thompson, all, show, you know, that was 12, 15 years of experience with those people and lucky enough to, to grow and be let be left alone to grow, but also just being being shown, you know, how to how to sort of manage and how to interact with people. If we go back to, chance to go back to some of those projects, I think you, you sort of mentioned it about some of the, the challenges that sort of particularly Chelsea Maddox faced in terms of regards to sort of a not too kind sort of press and some rather, rather high profile sort of protesters. Had you dealt with anything as political as this before? Uh, no, I'd had a, had a brief experience about it, it on Broadwick Street, actually, in Soho, where the Soho Society were very critical to say that Soho, that so, Soho was being gentrified by developers and therefore ripping the heart out of what Soho was about even even back then i mean it was far different scale to the american embassy and to, to chelsea barracks but it was always about meeting them and it was always about being open and always being about be, being as transparent as possible you know gp have got a fantastic reputation of delivering quality buildings and, and that was certainly the message but ultimately that will change the character of soho because it will be new developments and therefore you are going to lose the historic elements of, of, of soho you know some of the grimier elements of soho that make it so special and on Chelsea Barracks, you know, it had a history. But to be fair to QD, you know, they, they were very open. 
uh, with those groups, with those stakeholders, with local residents. And certainly I'm more than happy to to stand up and, and uh, put a face to, to the developer and, and actually just, just be there to listen, to understand their concerns. You may not necessarily agree with them, but but you you may have sympathy for them. And therefore, I think it's just trying to appease people, isn't it, on a on a on a personable level as well. Do you think there's is there more scepticism of a of an international based developer? Oh, you're straying into the into the political arena, Nick. I I, I don't know. I, th- I think I think ultimately nobody really likes change, and therefore developers are always faced with that rap, aren't they? The fact that they're going to come into an area. Do they understand that area and what are they going to enforce or impose on that neighborhood? I'd like to believe that developers can be considerate, that developers can enhance areas, can enrich areas, can take people's point of view and take people's perspective and actually use them within the development and define what goes onto sites because they actually want to stitch into that local context and that local character. But as you, as you scale up and you look at bigger master plans, then it, it's more difficult to do so in terms of stitching into the local fabric. Certainly like Chelsea Barracks is, you know, it's however many acres it is, you know, eight, eight, eight nine, ten acres down in down in that part of part of London, it's difficult to try and stitch in the character. But I think to be fair to Chelsea Barracks, that is what they've done, you know, and certainly Squires and, and Michael Squire in particular has has really helped that in terms of the character and, and the design of the building. The and the, and the American embassies was probably you know, just, you know, that that was my project for three years and, you know, researching the history, you know, of Eero Sarnen and what his original aspiration was for that building, that it was going to be a palace on the park, that it was a landmark building to Grosvenor Square, but there was a real interface between the square and the building. And actually the, the benefit and the real beauty of that becoming a hotel is that it, it, it returns to that. You take the fences away, you take the fortification away, you open up the building for people again and actually I, you know I can't wait to see the American embassy opening its doors and people being able to go back inside how it was originally intended back in the back in the 50s and 60s well there's just something that's I suppose in the back in the back of my mind something else that came up when we we're doing our research now this is this is what a former colleague said said about you he thought that when I asked him about sort of what do you think is a is, is a Warwick unique trait now he said he never makes assumptions he always seems to start the process with a broader perspective than anyone else. And in this market, the tendency to revert back to a safety first option is often a non-starter. And that's why Warwick wins out because of it. Which, again, is a very, very kind thing to say, isn't it? But it does, it does make, make me wonder, with regards to the American embassy, was there a simpler plan there? Is, you mentioned that, that split between profile versus return. What, what would have been the safety first option? I, I think the safety first option would have been to to look at a mixed use scheme, which we did. I mean, I, as I said, I spent six months exploring a full range of feasibility options, working with Paul Sandland from LDS, and you know, I was convinced that the right scheme for that location was probably a mixed use of a smaller hotel retail at ground floor that that animates the square, and then actually some residential on the top of the building because the proportions of that building are fantastic. You haven't got the mansarded roofs. Um, and you could have at the top of that building serviced by a five star hotel, five star luxury hotel could have had some of the best performing residential in, in the capital. And I think that that probably would have been a safer plan. The Qataris obviously opted more for the profile rather than the return and therefore they wanted to retain the jewel in the crown, as they call it. Um, and therefore it always had to be commercial and therefore a hotel. I think that that ultimately will carry risk, you know, because 
I think they're going to have to move to execute that business plan. They're going to have to move the London hotel market by a good 20 to 30 percent in terms of rate. It's got all the hallmarks that it can do that. But but that there is a hell of a risk in terms of trying to achieve that. And uh, yeah, but again, fascinating to explore the options. Fascinating to understand what uh, ultimately the investor and the shareholder wanted for that asset. This brings us nicely, then I think, then to to close to closing out, then coming up to sort of two thousand eighteen, doesn't it? And there is there is the potential then for 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 not only another role but also a big step up in your career. Do you want to explain a bit more about sort of what happens at this time and, and what that step up is? Yeah, I, I think it, it goes. It always goes back to process, Nick, which is really boring. <laughs> but you know, it's about developments, about risk, as I've said, and it's about execution. And at QD. The shareholder took took decisions and absolutely in their gift to take them. I didn't necessarily agree that at South Bank Place, backing the residential component compared to the office component was the right thing to do. Obviously, Mike Hussey stepped in with Almacanta to buy half a million square feet of the office element. And I, and I think that that was you know a shrewd move for Mike, potentially not the right move from, from the joint venture between Canary Wharf and QD. Understand why they did it in terms of being able to realise a, a better IRR by getting that money in. But it was just about having your hand on the tiller, I think, on the ship. And ultimately, you want to be responsible for setting the business plan. You want to be responsible for the execution of that business plan. And hopefully, you can find shareholders and investors that will support you to do that. And that was really the tipping point. And I think certainly the opportunity to come to Henley as a private equity real estate business with a a wealth of investors behind it to say, okay, well, go and try and build a, a development business, go and try and build a division and build your own P&L. You go and source the opportunities. You make the assumptions about what's right for the land, what, what the business plan should be, how the return profile should work, and you go and try and execute that. And again, that, that, that was the challenge. It obviously meant probably, and, and what, what will be a step down in terms of scale and potentially some glamour of the projects. You know, I don't think we're going to be starting a Chelsea Barracks or an American Embassy here. But actually, it's about the bricks and the mortar, and how do you get, how do you outperform the market with the choices that you make, and, and I think that's what's really exciting about about the role that I've now got at Henley. So up until this point, now you spent sort of 15, 16 years within within development, and then you make this next next move, managing director. I am curious as to you know, what you what you're looking to learn, or what you think you, you now need to learn in order to succeed in this role. Um, I think I think the next challenge, Nick, is is about understanding business. You know, I think I've spent, as you say, 15 years in the real estate, either in office environment, in the development management business, but but very much at the coalface in terms of bricks and sticks. So in project team meetings, in design workshops, in planning committees, etc. This this role is now about actually building a business and taking responsibility for a profit and loss account, you know, and, and actually how do you build that business? So how do what property do we want to bring in what risk and exposure do we want to you know give to our shareholders how can we build a portfolio but not only that how do we then manage a bit a, a successful business you know so how do we generate fees how do we generate promote on the back of that how do i then structure a team who do i want to bring in how do i balance that team how can i get this business working as efficiently and as effectively as i as i can and Henley again comes back to people, but I'm surrounded by great people who have, have already done that within Henley. Uh, and then the development and asset management business is just another strand to, to the business here. Uh, Ian Rickwood, CEO, is, is 
a firm believer that that we're an aeroplane that runs on you know four strong engines and therefore you can you can ride markets and you can ride cycles because you've got got those four engines and therefore the responsibility now is is for me to make sure that my engine is uh, is is in good working order and uh, you know we can build that team and we can build that business and that's that's what's really exciting now about about the role here i've got to, i've got to ask you then about sort of where how how or where do you go looking then to be able to learn those lessons because presumably by this time you've sick when you've got that title of managing director people expect you to know the answers don't they to most problems <laughs> I think I think it comes back to we, we made the point before you're always learning. I think if you if you ever sort of in a position where you say you don't want to learn anymore, then um, you, it's probably the time for you to leave leave the industry and retire. You know, I, I hope that that my experience gives people confidence in in how I can deliver and how I can execute real estate plans. And again, it comes back to trust. If they trust me to do that, and I can instill confidence in them, therefore you, you surround yourself with the people that that you can learn from. And hopefully you, you, you can all, uh, you know, go forward on that journey together. Let's go back then to, to learning, because once more, sort of Warwick Hunter has sort of picked up another asset class in regards to sort of build, build to rent. How steep a you know, sort of learning curve is this compared to other sectors you've worked in? It, it's amazing the transformation of real estate and user classes, because I think there's a real convergence, Nick, in terms of what makes good buildings. If I, if I rewind the clock 10 years when we started looking at first looking at Broadwick Street, what we said in terms of Soho was that it needed to have a domestic feel as an office building. It needed to be smaller scale. It didn't need huge cavernous receptions. It didn't need, you know, aquariums in the receptions and, and you know, overly gilding a lily. It needed to feel like a club. It needed to feel like a hotel lobby. It needed to feel like a residential building. So therefore, the office move, the office world is then moving into that softer side where you know, your, your reception almost feels like a hotel lobby. You could you could put a bar in it, you could put a cafe in it, you could put a breakout set space in it, you could actually put some, you know, almost a little bit of, of a lounge space into it. So suddenly you've created a bit of amenity in an office building. And therefore, when I then moved into the hospitality sector on the American Embassy, you know, that you're obviously then creating places for people to feel comfortable and feel relaxed and to feel looked after. And I think with build to rent, it's exactly the same that you're creating those amenity environments that people just want to spend time in. And actually, with build to rent, you're trying to build a sense of community. Uh, you're trying to build a sense of purpose for the people that they they enjoy they enjoy hanging out there. Um, and that should be the same whether it's an office or, or a hotel. And and build to rent just bolts onto that. You know, I think you look at in London at really successful developments and. Everybody will, will will talk about King's Cross because they've created that environment. And actually, it doesn't matter what's going on in the building above that ground floor plane. If you've got a place where people want to spend time in either restaurants or, or bars or you know libraries or quiet working spaces, it doesn't matter if above that is a number of flats or a number of apartments or an office or a hotel. And I think that's, as I said, I think that's where the user classes are converging in terms of trying to provide that, that right sort of balance on amenity. And then with build to rent, it's just understanding the mechanics of it, that it's actually, it's just looking at the appraisals, looking at the 10-year cash flows and seeing what the investors want out of that. How do they want to see those returns being managed? And therefore, can you shape the building to, to deliver those, against those return profiles? I mean, we've talked a lot about sort of learning and, and obviously you've, you've shown sort of a career particularly adept at learning and transitioning. To anyone listening now, who is keen to make that next step in their career, what do you think 
they need to what skill or what do they need to learn do you think to, to pick up do you think that's going to be the catalyst for for doing that you know what what do you think now that someone needs to know about development that sort of 10 years ago wasn't wasn't the case I think I think the first bit of advice is that there are no silly questions. You, you're surrounded in a development world. You're surrounded by experts in their field, and therefore ask ask questions continually. Ask questions because actually, if you don't understand something, there's a, the likelihood is you're going to make a a mistake, and you're going to make a decision that's not based on the right information. But you've got all of the knowledge and all of the expertise that surrounds you, and therefore just use that expertise and that wisdom that's around the table because. The more information you can learn and the more data you can look at, the better your decision making process is going to be. We're probably drawing this all uh, close to a close. So it's, it's probably fair to ask now in terms of sort of what's next. Now, for anyone listening who's been sort of listening to, to the dates, um, your, your career has been sort of built on sort of four year chapters, hasn't it? Yeah, basically every, every time there's a World Cup, Nick, I think <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I move. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, as as regular as sort of as metronome as uh, as that. Two years in now, to with Henley. You now, what's what's happening in the next two years? Well, it's been a, it's been a roller coaster of two years. Certainly this year, twenty twenty. But but what's been fantastic is that is that some of the deals we've managed to do uh, this year. So we bought a site down in Fulham that's capable of probably three hundred and fifty residential units with a great collaborative uh, agreement with the hopefully with the, the, the London Port Authority. We bought a site in Manchester about re- repurposing an alternative use value. Potentially, you know, that's two and a half thousand units up there that we could create. And I think it's building on that. I think it's development is not a four year a four year term. It, it's longer than that. And but I certainly want to be able to build a portfolio. You know, look at look at Henley to see how we we utilise the investors that are behind us. Potentially look at launching opportunistic funds would would be something great to sort of target within the next two to three years here at Henley. In order to, to to raise a fund, you have to you have to deliver on uh, on on your current portfolio. So the near term goal is to make sure that you know the uh, the assets we've got in the stable perform and perform well. That provides trust into your investor base. That hopefully then opens the doors in terms of allowing you to then then raise further capital and to to go again. And whilst you're doing that, your the business is growing, the team's growing. Hopefully, the people that I've brought into the business and can continue to bring into the business that motivates them and therefore if you're if you're all enjoying it and enjoying coming in every day and you know exploring and learning then uh, that's what it's all about let me ask you another question then has your idea of success changed over time it's an interesting question it's a question that actually i was asked when i joined henley that what does success look like and actually i, I I'll, I'll go back and uh, and quote hanif kara so i i pointed akt2 as our structural engineers on the US Embassy. And Hanif said that the US Embassy presents a fantastic grandfather test for you, Warwick. And I sort of said, well, what, what do you mean by that, Hanif? And he said, when you're a grandfather and you are walking your grandchildren through Mayfair and through Grosvenor Square, you should be able to look up at what you've created at the American Embassy and say, do you know what, kids? Your, your granddad did that. And I think that's what success looks like for me. It, it's to proudly walk through developments and proudly walk around real estate that you've had an influence in know that you've made a positive change in that environment know that it was successful financially and and it, and it did well for the investors that, that backed you through it and, and hold your head high and, and hopefully a sense of pride i think that's what success looks like for me nick 
Well, I think I think that's a, a lovely sort of you know, nostalgic, but also really positive sort of uh, way to draw this all to a close, mate. So thank thank you again for giving us the time for this. Thank you for you know really sort of being really sort of honest and open with us about about this sort of journey. I have no doubt people will really really benefit from the um, from everything you've learned along the way. Thanks, Nick. It's been great. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.